All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. And tonight we're going to start at verse 15. Remember, we are in the last week of Jesus' life, and the events of this section of verses here probably uh, occurred on, on Monday. If the triumphal entry occurred on Sunday, this would be Monday. But verse 15 said, So they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. This is the second time that Jesus cleansed the temple. As you remember in John's Gospel, chapter 2, in the beginning of his public ministry, again at Passover time, he went into the temple and he saw the, the animals being sold. He saw the money changers and he made a whip. And if you remember, he drove them all out and turned over the tables of the money changers and he drove the animals out. And uh, a similar situation, just as we read it now towards the end of his ministry. In fact, at the very end of his ministry, he now goes and cleanses the temple a second time. You say, well, <clears throat> did it do any good? No, not really. Uh, and he knew it wouldn't. But he still wanted to make a point that as a holy God, God will never tolerate this kind of hypocrisy and this kind of merchandising in the name of God going on in a place that should be a place of prayer and worship. And so Jesus was making a point, and Jesus often tries to bring us back to the right perspective of things, whether it be in the church collectively or in our own individual Christian lives. Oftentimes we don't learn the lessons he's trying to teach us, but he continues to try to bring us to a place of understanding where if we're doing something wrong, if we're violating something, whether intentionally or ignorantly, that we'll be made to see what he requires and we'll get in line with what he requires. As we have said, the scene was Jerusalem. Uh, it was Passover time, which meant it was in the spring of the year. And as I've said before, Passover was one of three main Jewish feasts which every Jew, uh, adult male Jew who lived 15, within 15 miles of Jerusalem was required by Jewish law to attend. The other two were uh, Pentecost in the summer and Tabernacles in the fall. But, as I said before, these three feasts brought Jews from all over the known world. Passover was the most popular. And so probably at Passover time, more than any other throughout the year, Jerusalem swelled with incoming uh, Jewish pilgrims. Many estimates range between two and three million would come to Jerusalem at Passover time. Uh, of course, the city could not hold all of these. And the Mishnah said that Jerusalem was the only real place to observe the Passover. You could do it in other places, but didn't really kind of count. Jerusalem was the only true place to observe the Passover. But so many Jews came to Jerusalem at Passover time, the city couldn't hold them all. And so the rabbis, as they often would do, got around that little technicality by proclaiming a temporary edict whereby around Passover time, they expanded the borders of Jerusalem to include the surrounding villages and towns so that you could technically eat your Passover meal in Bethany or uh, Bethphage and still technically be in the city proper. So uh, they often get around those little technicalities. Uh, but it was an exciting time. It was a, a, a joyful time, a time when you remember uh, this was to commemorate God delivering his people under Moses from the hands of Pharaoh. However, there's a problem here. If you read John's gospel, it says that, and this was three years earlier, but still it tells us there was a problem with the Passover in general. Because John said that the Passover of the Jews was near. Now John uses the term Jews in a, a way that every time he uses it, he's not talking about the Jewish people in general. He's talking about the Jewish religious leadership. So when you read the Gospel of John and he uses the word Jews, the Jews sought to kill Jesus or whatever, he's always talking about the Jewish leadership which had corrupted itself. John says 
the Passover of the Jews was near. Now, right up front, that tells us the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate something to us, and that is that something had gone wrong with the Passover. Because in Exodus 12, if you go back and read it, when God first instituted the Passover, he called it the Lord's Passover. He says, it is the Lord's Passover. But over the years, something had caused it to degenerate from something that was holy, a commemorative feast, to something that had corrupted itself, had become unholy, so much so that the Lord didn't even want to associate with it anymore. He kind of, the Holy Spirit just gave it up. It was the Jews' Passover. It wasn't the Lord's anymore. It was the Jews' Passover. Now, what happened to cause God to remove himself from the whole concept of the Passover? Well, first of all, we have to understand, it says here that Jesus went into the temple. In the Greek, it's not the temple proper, it's the temple area. This is the whole temple area that we're talking about here. The whole temple area consisted of about 30 acres on top of Mount Zion. It consisted of a series of buildings and courts. And of course, it included the temple building itself, which in comparison to the whole temple area was relatively small. Remember, the temple itself was a building that consisted of two rooms. The first was called the holy place, and it was two-thirds the size of the entire building. In the holy place, you had the table of showbread to the right, upon which the priest would bake 12 fresh loaves every week, for each representing one of the 12 tribes. To your left, you had the menorah, the only light source in the temple area. Right in front of you, before you entered into that veil that led into the second compartment, the holy of holies, you had a golden altar called the altar of incense upon which the, prayer, the priest would offer prayers for the people. And then in entering that second compartment, and of course nobody did that but the high priest, and then only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, you entered into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And in that place you had only the Ark of the Covenant. At this time, of course, it wasn't there. But in the tabernacle you had the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which had the lid on it, which was the mercy seat. And uh, the cherubim, which were standing with their wings outstretched, touching tip to tip, facing one another, heads down, wings touching just above the mercy seat. The mercy seat was, of course, uh, the place where it was understood that God dwelled. It was the throne of God in the earth. Of course, none of this was existed at this time because around Jeremiah's time, the Ark of the Covenant vanished. We don't know where it is. From what I understand, at this time, the Jews had a big block of granite in the Holy of Holies, which they would sprinkle the blood on on the day of Yom Kippur. They didn't have the Ark of the Covenant and so on. But that was the temple itself. Now, around the temple, there consisted a series of courts, each one extending out a little farther than the one before it. If you started with the temple, if you stood at the temple itself, the court closest to the temple was the court of the priests, which encompassed the outer court. Of course, the outer court of the temple was the place where the altar of sacrifice was, the brazen uh, laver, which they would wash themselves in, and so on. Those were on the, in the outer court. And this was a court that was included in the court of the priests, a place, of course, that only the Jewish priests could congregate and enter into. Beyond that court of the priests, you had the court of the men, where Jewish men could congregate, you see. They couldn't go any farther than that area. They could, of course, uh, move about any other place, but they couldn't go any farther than the court of the men, certainly not into the court of the priest, because that was, of course, reserved for the priest. Beyond that, you had the court of the women, which extended out a little farther, and this was a place that the Jewish women could congregate. Of course, the men could go there too, but the women couldn't go any farther than that place. They couldn't go into the court of the men because that was restricted from them. Beyond the court of the women, the Jewish court of the women, you had the court of the Gentiles, the biggest area, okay? Separating the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women, you had a small fence that went around the whole perimeter, and every so many feet you have a, had a sign, I believe it was written in two or different, three different languages, and it went something like this, any Gentile caught past this point will be executed. So that served as a visible reminder of the wall of partition that separated Jew and Gentile, you see? And of course, Paul talked about that in, in Ephesians when he talked about how Jesus Christ has torn down that middle wall of partition that separated Jew and Gentile and has made from the two one new man in Christ. And of course, no doubt, Paul had that in his mind, that picture of that fence which served as a visible 
reminded everyone of the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, this court of the Gentiles was the area where the money changers were, where the animals were being sold. So you get this in your mind. This was the farthest court now from the temple, the biggest one, all in the temple area, but farthest removed from the temple itself because, of course, that represents a place where God and man came together and Gentiles just didn't come together with God in the Jewish mind, okay? Uh, so the Gentiles were the farthest from God, you might say. Now, as I said, at this time of year, millions of Jews would come from all over the known world to Jerusalem for Passover. But if you were a Jew that lived many hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, and maybe this is the only time during the whole year you could get there, well, you would want to sacrifice to God. I mean, not only would you want your, to offer your lamb and to be the one to be used in the Passover feast itself, but you would also want to, uh, no doubt, offer sacrifices to God, sin offerings or um, burn offerings or peace offerings, you know. And so these pilgrims would want to offer sacrifices to God. Well, to accommodate them, the Jewish merchants in the area had set up booths and different shops all over the court of the Gentiles, if you can imagine this. There was animals everywhere to accommodate these Jewish pilgrims, you know, to make it easy for them to go ahead and buy animal sacrifices for the worship of God and all. And you know what? On the face of it, that didn't seem like a bad idea. In fact, it probably started off as a legitimate service and a genuine ministry to those pilgrims Jewish pilgrims who were coming from all over the world, known world. And, you know, if you were traveling from a faraway destination, maybe by ship to the Holy Land, it would have been a hard, hard for you to drag your, maybe your oxen or your, uh, your bullocks or your, your goats or your sheep to offer to God. It was just easier. And if you did drag the thing with you and it fell down along the way and, and gashed itself, it would have been useless for sacrifice. It was just easier to buy one there in the temple area, you know, just made it easy on everybody. Nothing wrong with that, but as so oftentimes happens with any ministry that starts out on a good, uh, in a good way, it over time degenerated into a business and then into a corrupt business, especially when these two guys named Annas and Caiaphas, the two high priests, and there was only supposed to be one high priest, one was appointed by the Jews, the others the Ro uh, Romans appointed. So you had a situation in Jesus there where you had two high priests. They were both corrupt to the core. And they began working with the Jewish merchants, kind of in cahoots with them, to rip off these Jewish pilgrims who had come to worship God by charging overinflated prices for these animal sacrifices. I mean, you could buy a dove out in the street for a, a nickel, but in the temple area, you had to pay four bucks, four or five bucks for a dove to sacrifice to God. Say you did bring your little lamb or your turtle dove to offer to God. It still had to be inspected and approved by one of the priests standing all throughout the court of the Gentiles. And don't you know, they were all corrupt to the core. They would take your little animal and they would look at it and look at it and search it over until they found one little spot or blemish and they would reject it and say, well, we do have some kosher animals over here that have been pre-approved for sacrifice by the high priest. And you would almost be forced into buying one of their animals to sacrifice to God at these overinflated prices. Also, you had what was called the money changers. Now, Jewish law dictated that every Jew, 19 years and above, had to pay a temple tax of a half shekel of silver every year. That was for the upkeep of the temple, and it was your responsibility. It was not even your responsibility. It was the law. You had to pay this temple tax of a half shekel of silver every year. Well, that was no problem, except they wouldn't accept in the temple area your Roman coinage or any Gentile currency. You had to pay your tax with temple shekels. And so the priest set up these money changers where you could come and you could change your Roman coinage for temple shekels. And again, uh, doesn't sound like a bad deal, except again, the priests were running the whole deal and they were corrupt. And so they were charging exorbitant exchange rates, sometimes 25% and above for you to exchange your Roman currency into temple shekels. It was a real little deal going, man. I mean, they had a real good deal going. Only problem was their deal was being done at the expense of God's character, and they were really ripping people off who had come 
with sincere hearts to worship God. They were making merchandise off of God's people. And don't you know, they were causing people who had come to worship God with a pure heart, with joy, they had, were causing them to resent the things of God. They didn't want to give to God because it was such a rip-off. You know what I'm saying? They were giving people a bad concept of God himself, of the worship of God. They were turning people off. It was religion at its worst, where it had become empty and meaningless, corrupt, a business whereby people were actually using the name of God and people's desire to worship God as a way to make merchandise off of them, you know, to line their pockets off the name of Jehovah. And these greedy merchandisers, these corrupt covetous men were perverting the worship of God and making it something unholy and perverted and corrupt. No wonder the Holy Spirit called it the Passover of the Jews and not the Lord's Passover. You can see now why the Holy Spirit distanced himself from uh, that whole deal. He didn't want to be associated with this uh, kind of thing uh, any longer. And the sad part about all of it is also was all of this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was originally designed to be a place where Gentile seekers who were searching for God could come and a priest would lead them to the Lord, basically, and pray with them and allow them, you know, lead them into Judaism. They were people that were searching for God and possibly to become uh, Jewish converts and all. This was supposed to be a place where people were evangelized, where people were introduced to the Lord. Now, can you imagine a Gentile seeker coming to the court of the Gentiles, looking for God, wanting to find God, and seeing all this this merchandising going on, all this, this corruption that's filled with noise and animals running everywhere and people are being ripped off as they exchange their money. I wonder how many Gentiles in seeing all this just turned around and went home. Never even inquired about God. Felt like, hey, I don't think God is even here. Maybe he went somewhere else. Well, what did Jesus do? Well, you might call this spring cleaning Jesus style because that's exactly what he did. He cleaned house. And uh, John says three years earlier he got himself a whip and he just drove them all out. Well, it doesn't talk about the whip here, but he does basically the same thing. He starts driving them all out, you know. He kicks over the money tables. He takes the animals. He's, and he, I mean, there was an enormous crowd of people there. Think about it. This was no small area. One man drives the entire crowd out. I mean, we're talking hundreds of people. But can you just imagine... Jesus, God incarnate, eyes flashing with righteous indignation. I mean, to look at him must have sent terror up and down your spine. I mean, people ran for the hills. I mean, first of all, Jesus was quite a man. Just from a physical, we know he was God, of course, but just from a human physical standpoint, Jesus Christ was a, quite a man. You know, we look at these pictures of, you know, that depict Christ, and he's always this scrawny, uh, skinny pusillanimous little Casper milk toast uh, of a guy. <laughs> Don't forget Jesus was a carpenter. And back then, you just didn't call the mill and have them deliver your wood and then work with power tools. I mean, you had to go out to where the trees were, cut down a tree, drag it back to the shop. You had to use hand tools to tear the bark off and saw it into boards or whatever you wanted to use it for. Uh, think of a lumberjack. Uh, Jesus was a big, strong, burly lumberjack kind of a guy. We know he was tough. First of all, he took that tremendous scourging where he was almost scourged to the point of death. He was scourged to the point of death. Then he picks up a cross weighing between 200 and 250 pounds and walks up a steep hill uh, to where they were going to finally nail him to it. I mean, he was quite a man. And here we see Jesus, a side of Jesus that a lot of people don't understand. They can't relate to or they refuse to believe. This is not the, the gentle Jesus that so many people think of, of when they think of Jesus Christ. You know, the little the skinny little carpenter that, uh, you know, loved everybody regardless of what they did or what they were into and walked around the area of Galilee patting the little kids in the head, you know, and turn, telling them to turn the other cheek. You know, this, this, this nice benign concept of Jesus that many people think of when they think of Jesus Christ. And certainly he was kind and certainly he was loving. But there was a side to Jesus that a lot of people don't understand. They can't relate to. 
uh, they refuse to believe many of them. And that is the side of Jesus, the side of God's character that will not tolerate sin in any form, especially among those who claim to represent him, but will someday, his patience will come to an end, and he will punish those with righteous indignation. And the Bible talks about him coming out of heaven to gather into the winepress of the wrath of the fierceness of Almighty God, all those peoples and nations that have turned their backs on the word of God and on, on Jesus Christ. And he is someday going to bring horrible judgment upon this world. And yet people don't, they don't like to think about that or they don't even want to hear it. How many people, when you start talking about judgment, say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that God would judge anybody. God is a God of love. Yes, God is a God of love, but God is also holy. And you know, people, they tend to focus only on the aspects of God's character that they want to focus on, and they somehow just turn a blind eye to the rest of his attributes and his character. We know the Bible says God is love. God is gracious. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. But he's also holy righteous, just, and so on. In theology, it's wrong to emphasize any one of God's attributes above all the others, because God is God in his entirety, right? But if we were going to take one attribute that most sums up God, even though love is a beautiful attribute of God, it wouldn't be the one we would choose, because every time we're taken to heaven in the Bible and we're given a vision of the throne of God, we always see the four cherubs, the, the cherubim around the throne. And what are they chanting day and night without fail? Love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. No, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I mean, I think if we had to sum up God's character in one word, one attribute above all the others, it would be holiness. Now, thank God he's the God of love and God of mercy. But his mercy and his love won't save us from his wrath if we don't come to Christ and receive forgiveness of sins. So this is a side of Jesus that people don't like to come to terms with. They don't like to think about. Because to think about a God who punishes sin, well, of course, then you have to take it to the next step and believe in a place called hell. And a lot of people, although they believe in heaven, refuse to believe in a place called hell. How many people have you witnessed to that believe on the one hand there's a heaven, but refuse to believe there's a hell? Why? Because it comforts them to believe there is no hell. If there's no hell, then there's no punishment for sinners. Uh, because God is love and God won't punish really anybody. Uh, that's not true. And so we have to be careful that we understand the character of God. And of course, when Jesus talked about the fact that he was going away soon, he said, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Philip's, uh, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And Philip said, well, Lord, show us the Father. We'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. If you want to know what the Father's like, look at the Son. Because he's a total representation of the Father. Well, Jesus was loving and kind and compassionate. The people you think he might be upset with, the harlots and the tax collectors and the thieves and the he was very kind to very compassionate towards very forgiving of it was the professional religionists that he had no use for the pharisees the sadducees the chief priests because they were the ones who claimed to represent god and they laid all these heavy theological burdens on people these laws and things but they were not willing to to what uh, as jesus said move them with one of their fingers in other words they would dump all the heavy burdens on their hearers but they themselves weren't even prepared to live out any of those things and so jesus came down in them very hard because the one group that he will always come down hardest on is those people that claim to know him and represent him judgment always begins first at the house of god because among all those who claim to know god to follow him, to represent him, but in reality, like the Pharisees, or like the not the Pharisees, these were not the Pharisees, these were the Sadducees who really were in charge of this whole area, in cahoots with the chief priests and all. But um, there's a lot of people today just like this. In fact, that's really what we're leading into, because 
the temple back then, of course, was the place where the Jews came to worship God. It was the place where God was believed to dwell in. But the New Testament tells us very clearly that God doesn't live in a temple made with hands. Okay, Even Solomon recognized that when he dedicated the first temple. He said, Lord, it's foolish for us to think that through the work of our hands and building you this house, that you dwell in this house. For have the heavens uh, of heavens are your throne and the earth is your footstool. I mean, there's no house on earth or building that can contain your fullness. So Solomon recognized that even way back when he dedicated the first temple. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3.17 and other places, Peter talks about the fact that we are living stones being built together by the Holy Spirit into a holy habitation for God. In other words, the temple of God in the New Testament is the church. The church collectively becomes the temple of God, not made with hands, but actually made of living stones, all of us, who are being built together by the Holy Spirit into a holy dwelling place or a temple for God. If Jesus were to come to his church, and I'm speaking now collectively in general, if Jesus were to come to his church today, I'm talking about all those that claim to belong to the Church of Christ, all the denominations, all the independent churches, okay, that we see sprinkled throughout not just America but the world. If Jesus was going to was going to come today to his church, don't you know that he would come, I believe, in just almost the same way he came here? I believe he would come basically with a whip in hand and saying, you know, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. You know, people come down on the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day for the hypocrisy, the greed, and all of this. And yet, how blind so many people are in the church today that we have the same things going on basically today that went on back then in Jesus' day. We have the church, which is the new temple of God, and yet what do we see? We see all kinds of corruption. We see all kinds of hypocrisy. We see all kinds of merchandising going on in the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, I watch some of these programs on cable on this, these religious stations, and I get sick to my stomach to watch how that they will use Scripture as a springboard to kind of, to kind of hook their hearers, to make them think they're really men of God. And, and, and many of them are men of God. Don't misunderstand me. Not everyone on TV is a, is a, is a hypocrite or a, or a rip-off artist. But man, some of these guys, I am absolutely appalled. I mean, it's so obvious that they're just making merchandise. I mean, they're just off the people of God. They're using the Bible to kind of give the impression they're men of God. But in reality, after about five or ten minutes of Bible teaching, they launch into 30 or 40 minutes of, of asking for money. And some of the form letters that I have seen come to me personally from some of these so-called ministries, apparently signed by some of these televangelists using my name as if they know me. I was thinking about you the other day, and dear Phil, and I was thinking about you, and you were God laid you on my heart, and is there anything I can pray for you for? I mean, what's burdening you? Let me know. I'm concerned. And if you do write and let me know, will you please enclose a generous donation for this ministry because we're, times are tough and we're, you know, I'm not kidding you. I mean, I have seen the most manipulative letters sent out uh, in the name of some of these Christian organizations to people in the Church of Jesus Christ. I, I, it's amazing to me. It's shocking to me. It's no wonder that seekers who are coming to church looking to find God when they see the hypocrisy and the constant emphasis on money they, I wonder how many have just turned around and have walked away and gone and looked somewhere else for the Lord. It is really tragic today. And, and what's also very tragic to me is that so many Christians seem to have such a lack of discernment when it comes to these crooks. You know, Jesus warned us about the wolves who would come in sheep's clothing. He warned us about, uh, and not only Jesus, of course, Peter, Paul, Jude, uh, James, they all warned us about these crooks who would come dressed in sheep's clothing looking like you know true shepherds of the lord and all who would come and who would just basically only want to make merchandise out of the people of god i mean it's incredible i i can't understand how some of these guys can stay on television when just to look at them they're so obviously full of baloney i mean you don't need any discernment in fact what several years ago wasn't it on the johnny carson show the uh 
what is it, the Incredible Randy, or who's that ma that uh, magician who uh, is also kind of uh, an agnostic, and he kind of uh, goes around exposing some of these religious phonies because he, you know, he understands some of the the gadgetry and the gimmicks that they will use because he's a magician himself. And uh, what on Johnny Carson's show? He uh, years ago he uh, exposed Peter Popoff. Peter Popoff. Well, he's uh, Peter Popoff is back again, by the way, uh, but. He would move through the audience, or he would stand up on stage, I'm sorry, and uh, before the show, I could call it, it wasn't a ministry, it was a show, if anything else, but uh, he would have people in the audience fill out cards, you know, giving their name and where they lived and some insight into their lives and maybe some problems they had brought with them that they wanted prayer for, maybe physical problems or financial problems and all. And then Peter's wife would move through the audience and... Uh, or she would be off to the side having collected the cards, knowing whose cards belonged to what person. And she had a very tiny uh, transmitter uh, that she was wearing somewhere, and she would, and he was wearing a, a receiver in his ear, very small, you couldn't see it. And she would basically say, a woman in the red dress, third row, her name is so-and-so, and she's got a problem with this or that. And then all of a sudden... Peter Popoff would supposedly get a word of knowledge. Uh, women in the third row, you in the red dress, ma'am, stand up, please. You know, uh, is your name Shirley? Well, well yes, it is. Uh, you live at such and such an address. Well, by this time, people are like they're freaking out. I mean, it's like, whoa, yes, you've come here tonight because you've got chronic back problems. What? Oh, you know, by this time she's weeping and she's just, well, it was just a big ripoff scheme, and the church couldn't see through it, but. The Amazing Randy, I shouldn't say the whole church. A lot of people at the church knew this guy was a ripoff artist. But I mean, how many Christians, though, real Christians, followed this guy and couldn't see through all the baloney? Well, after he was exposed, he went into hiding for a while. Now he's back again. And believe me, he's going to have a big following again. Because people are like sheep. Very gullible, you know? Well, Jesus was totally incensed at this kind of merchandising in his father's name, in his father's house. And he drove out these crooks. He kicked over the money tables. He drove out the, uh, the animals and those who were selling the animals there in the court of the Gentiles. And in Matthew's gospel, it gives us insight into what happened after Jesus cleansed the temple. In verse, chapter 21, verse 13, he said to them, to those that he had just driven out, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. First of all, a den of thieves or a den of robbers was a place where robbers would congregate to hide out. And really, in a sense, these scribes and chief priests were robbers, who were hiding behind Judaism, and in reality, all they were doing was ripping people off under the guise of religion and piety and everything else that, you know, that people will use to mislead others with regard to God. But the first thing that happened was the temple returned to what God intended it to be, a place of prayer, first of all. Now, you say, well, did that continue for any length of time? Did that continue on then as a place of prayer it seems to have because in Acts chapter 3 if you remember the uh, the uh, disciples were going to the temple it was their custom to go to the temple at various hours of the day to pray so even by the time we come to Acts chapter 3 the temple is still being used now as a place of prayer so <clears throat> maybe some of this took for a while at least but after Jesus cleansed the temple it became again a place of prayer secondly Verse 14 says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So secondly, it became a place where the blind received their sight, and where the lame were made to walk. And of course, spiritually speaking, the church should be a place of prayer, not of merchandising, not so much of entertainment or social interaction. I mean, those things are okay to a point, but what about the real important things, like prayer. Prayer is the dynamic. I shouldn't say the dynamic of the church. The Holy Spirit is really the, the dynamic of the church, but the power of the Spirit is released through prayer. 
So prayer becomes the channel through which God releases His power. As one uh, uh, man put it some time ago, prayer is the muscle that moves the arm of omnipotence. I mean, it's prayer that moves the arm of God on behalf of His people, on behalf of the world problems and whatever it might be. Prayer is so very important. And we have. there was a time when the church uh, didn't do anything without prayer. Today it seems like the church does most everything without prayer. I think it was Tozer who said, if the Holy Spirit was removed from the early church ministry, 90% of what they were involved in would have, be, would have come to a screeching halt. If the Holy Spirit was removed today from the ministry of the church, 10% of what the church is involved in would come to a screeching halt. You know why? We don't need the Holy Spirit anymore. We're going to build a church through demographic studies. We're going to canvas the neighborhood. We're going to find out what people want in a church, you see. Prayer, Bible study, that doesn't bring them in the doors anymore. No, no, we have to become 90s thinkers. You know, we have to give the people what they want. Sure, we've got to become a church of man-pleasers, right? As one lady said one time, when is the church going to stop entertaining the goats and get back to feeding the sheep? Today you don't see the important things emphasized anymore. Prayer is a very important thing. And when the church is cleansed of all the hypocrisy, the greed, and all the other things that hinder what God intended the church to be, one of the first things that takes place, in other words, when a church gets really saved, okay, when it stops being a Laodicean church and starts becoming a Philadelphian church, well, one of the first things you begin to see is prayer. The next thing is you begin to see the teaching of the Word, which causes the eyes of the blind to be open, and the lame, the spiritually crippled, to be able to walk in the Spirit. That's the ministry of the church, to open the spiritual eyes of those who are blind, and to help those who were once crippled with regard to spiritual things to walk in the Spirit. Thirdly, it says in verse 15, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. You know, the church should be a place where wonderful things happen, where spiritual power is released, where people are healed, where families or marriages are restored, where families are put back on track, where people, of course, get saved, and where people are getting healed spiritually, emotionally, and physically. The church should be a place where wonderful things are happening. In fact, it says about the early church, and again, they had a very simple format. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in prayer, in breaking of bread and in fellowship. And the Lord added to the church daily those being saved. And everyone, it says, outside the church was amazed, astonished at the things that God was doing in the church. See, people saw a church that was dynamic. It was alive. It was real. There was spiritual power. And unbelievers were astonished at what was going on in the church. Unbelievers in the community should be looking at our church and, be, and, and should actually be going, wow, what are those folks got going in there? What, what are they into? I mean, look at the power. Look at what's going on in their lives and in their church. The church should be a place where wonderful things are happening, where power is being released. Also, the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And, of course, the Pharisees were indignant. The church should also be a place where praise is being lifted up to God. I mean, simple, basic, and yet this is what the church is. The church is an organism. It is not a dead organization. It is a living organism. It is called the body of Christ, where Jesus is the head, where the life blood of the Holy Spirit flows through us, we are bound together as members of the body of Christ. We are an organism. But unfortunately today, the church has degenerated into a dead organization, a corpse that has the form of a church, and yet there's no real power, there's no real prayer, there's not anything wonderful going on. It's become a, a sanctified social gathering place. It's become a, uh, a place where people that like entertainment and activities but don't like to brush elbows with people in the world can come and have kind of a sanctified uh, time of fun and entertainment and activity. And, and of course I know you understand that I'm not against entertainment and activity and some fun in the church, but when that becomes the focus, when that becomes the church's whole ministry, something is drastically wrong. 
And a lot of times it's because of this very thing. The focus is all off. People are looking at the church as a place to kind of make some money, build a building, uh, be a visible thing going on here. Uh, that's always the way a church begins to degenerate into a dead organization. So <clears throat> Jesus cleansed the temple in his day. It became a place of prayer, a place of, of healing for the blind and for the lame, a place of praise, a place where wonderful things were happening. I am convinced that Jesus is not happy with the state of his church today. Oh, yes, we have the faithful remnant. There is the Philadelphian groups around, and I hope we're part of that. But if you look at all the churches that Jesus wrote to in Revelation 2 and 3, a lot of them were in serious trouble. In fact, Laodicea, he was on the outside knocking to get into. He wasn't even in that church. And we see a lot of those churches today around here uh, in America. It's sad. It's very sad. Now, before we get too smug and say, yeah, thank God we're not like other churches, let's be careful because there's one last application that we need to make here. Then looking at the temple, yes, there was a literal temple in Jesus' day that he cleansed. And only after he cleansed it was it able to be used for what God wanted it to be used for. And we can compare that today. Of course, 1 Corinthians 3.17 and, uh, and 1 Peter, I believe, chapter 2. Other places talk about how that we collectively now, as members of the body of Christ, become a spiritual temple in the church in general, you know, for Jesus to dwell in. But there's also a final application, and that is that in different parts of the Bible, it says that our hearts as Christians have become the temple of God, where God actually now lives in our hearts. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, there's a very important verse that Paul gives here. He said, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That was Paul's prayer, among other things, for the Ephesians and for all the body of Christ, that Jesus Christ may dwell. Now, he was talking to the individual believer, that Jesus Christ may dwell in our hearts, because our hearts are the temple of God. But the word dwell there is a very important word in the Greek. It literally means to settle down and feel at home. Paul wanted Jesus not just in their hearts. Of course, he wanted that. In other words, he wanted to see them saved and believe that they were saved, obviously. But you can be saved and Jesus can be in your heart and yet not feel comfortable there or at home. Have you ever been invited over to somebody's house and as soon as you walked in, you felt very uncomfortable? Maybe you've had a situation where you've been in a place where it was just a wreck. Uh, I used to help uh, a mover friend of mine years ago and uh, when he was in the area he, if he needed a, another hand to help pack up a house, a, a family, he'd, he'd call me and uh, I'm not kidding you, some of the houses we went into I have to tell you I didn't know how human beings could live that way. Now when you walk into a place like that you don't feel very comfortable. What if you were invited over and walked into a place like that and they said, well, sit down, make yourself at home. You'd be afraid that you'd stick to something. You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to sit down. You wouldn't want to touch anything. You couldn't feel comfortable, right? Because it was filthy. Well, in the very same sense, a lot of our hearts, we're asking Jesus to come live in our heart, right? But what is our heart like? I mean, what is it like inside there? What is it filled with? I mean, is it filled with all kinds of horrible things that we're not willing to deal with or allow him to clean up. If we invite him into our hearts, we automatically give him the right to go ahead and tear down the wallpaper, rip up the carpeting, change the decor, clean out those closets, that those junk closets, you know, that uh, nobody touches. Those are the last rooms in the house to get a good cleaning because all the junk gets stuffed in there, right? There's a lot of those closets in our hearts that, you know, maybe... A lot of our heart, we've allowed him to kind of clean up with those junk. There's a few junk closets that we've stuffed a lot of garbage into that we're not willing to deal with or get rid of. And Jesus can't be comfortable in our hearts until we allow him to get into all the areas of our hearts. In fact, he's constantly, he's constantly digging up these areas. And they're not pleasant to look at, are they? When you think 
hey, maybe I got this Christian thing down a little bit, you know? I'm starting to get the hang of this. I, I'm feeling kind of kind of like the fruit of the Spirit is beginning to grow. And Jesus opens up one of those junk closets and a bunch of garbage falls out. And we go, Lord, kicking it back in there. What are you doing, you know? He said, hey, this has got to be dealt with too. This has got to be cleaned out. What about this stuff? And I'm like, well, what about it? I, I'm not ready to get rid of it. Well, you got to get rid of it if you want me to be at home here. And uh, we have to give him permission. Now, uh, in John's gospel, when it says that Jesus drove out, when he drove out the money changes and all, it's a very intense word. I mean, he drove out with force. I mean, he didn't say, hey, folks, would you mind, uh, you know, moving those tables? Or He didn't ask anyone's permission. He just went ahead and cleaned house. And Jesus is not going to ask our permission in a sense because we've already given it to him when we've invited him in to live in our hearts and yet he's not going to force us either really in the final analysis we have to be willing for him to clean house we have to be willing for him to get at the hypocrisy the greed maybe some people in your life that have rubbed you the wrong way for a long time and there's a lot of bitterness or resentment maybe they've done something to you and you feel like you've gotten past it, but all you've really done is taken it and stuffed the resentment in a closet. You haven't really dealt with it. You haven't really forgiven them. I mean, you haven't really got it out in the open and seen it for what it is and asked God to forgive you because you know it's a sin for you to harbor resentment or bitterness towards anybody. And so we just kind of stuff it in the closet. We forget about it. It's still there. Jesus knows it's still there. And he's going to dig it out. And when he does, and with that tends to mean is he's going to bring them across your path again he's going to open up old wounds because those wounds were never really healed in the first place and he's going to force you to deal with it now you may still go ahead and stuff it back in the closet but if you do that if you don't deal with it then you're not letting him settle down and feel at home the more he feels at home in your heart well that simply means the more you're becoming like him I mean, when he begins to feel more and more at home, it's because the surroundings are becoming more and more to what he's accustomed to. The holiness, the godliness that, of course, Christ was accustomed to in heaven with his Father, in a sense, is becoming now replicated in our hearts, even though we'll never be completely holy or pure in these earthly bodies. Yet, there is a point where I think where, as we yield to the, to the uh, ministry of the Spirit in our hearts and Jesus begins to show us more and more of the junk in our own hearts and we begin to deal with it and repent of it, more and more we, we see ourselves being transformed into the image of Christ. More and more can He feel at home now. And more and more you're going to begin to see the very things develop in your life naturally that you want to see so badly as a Christian, such as you want to be a man or a woman of prayer. You want to be a person that truly loves and praises the Lord. You want to help people who are spiritually blind see and those who are lame to walk with God. I mean, in other words, do you want to be used in ministry to help people come to Christ? We all want that as Christians, or we should, but that's not going to happen if your heart is full of a lot of junk, you see. Only until the temple, only when the temple was cleansed was it able to be used by God for what he wanted to use it for. And if we're harboring a lot of junk, there's a lot of junk in our hearts that's hindering the work of God. God can't really use our hearts the way he wants to use them as a place of prayer and worship, a place of a spiritual uh, power where wonderful things are happening in our hearts and in our lives on a daily basis for him. The heart is so important, you know? I mean, there's more to this story than a building that was cleansed or an area that was cleansed in Palestine some 2,000 years ago. This relates to us today. Our heart is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we have to bring our heart to the Lord because you know what? It all starts in the heart. I mean, the heart is the key. That's why everything God does is for your heart. Because if God gets a hold of your heart, He's got a hold of you. That's the way it is. Because out of the abundance of the heart, right, come the issues of life. I mean, everything starts in the heart. And if the Lord can get a hold of that, if He can get you to take a good hard look at your heart, and you know, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, right? I mean, you know the sad part about it? You know the, the person the heart deceives the most is me. I mean, self-deception is the worst deception going. The person who can't honestly look at themselves and say, you know what, I'm wrong. 
or I've got some problems that I'm, or areas of sin I'm not willing to deal with, Lord, and it's wrong, and it's hindering my ministry for you. It's hindering my walk with you. And until I'm ready to deal with it, and Lord, I want to deal with it, please do a little spring cleaning in my heart. Show me the junk. As David prayed, Lord, show me the secret sins that I'm not even aware of. Show them to me, Lord, because until I see them, I can't confess them. And until I confess them, I can't repent of them. And until I do that, I can't get right with you. And until I get right with you, I can't be used by you. And I can't really walk with you the way I want. And so it all begins in the heart. I encourage you to do some honest self-examination. I encourage you to ask the Lord, Lord, show me what's in my own heart. I'm, I'm convinced I'm blind to a lot of it. Maybe I don't think I'm a prideful person. But maybe I really am in a lot of ways. Maybe I think I really attain to some level of spirituality or holiness. But in reality, there's a lot of garbage still in my heart that would tend to suggest otherwise. So ask the Lord, Lord, as you cleansed the temple 2,000 years ago, will you cleanse the temple of my heart? Make it a place where you feel comfortable. You can settle down and live there comfortably, Lord, and make it a place that you want it to be, a spiritual place of prayer and worship and so on and so forth. I'm convinced he will do it. It won't be a pleasant process, but he will do it. If you're sincere, believe me, he will begin to show you what is standing in the way of him really being intimate with you and using you. And that's a very important thing. It all begins in the heart. May God cleanse the temple of our heart. Father, thank you, Lord, again, that even though your word is well, we know it's, uh, it, this was a historical story, Lord, yet it is so rich with practical applications for us today. And we just pray, Lord, that you would show us what's in our own heart. Search me, O Lord, and try my heart, know my thoughts, and so on. Reveal if there be an evil way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I just pray, Lord, that you will Show us what's in our own hearts. That you will begin to cleanse our hearts, Lord, by forcing us to deal with those areas of sin that we're not really coming to terms with. Things that are grieving you. Things that are keeping you from really settling down and feeling at home in our hearts. And ultimately then, using us in the way you want us uh, to use us. We love you, Lord. We don't want anything to stand between us and you. We want you to feel totally at home in our heart. We want it to be a godly environment, a holy environment for you to live in, Lord. Help us. We cannot cleanse it by ourselves. Only you can cleanse our hearts and drive out the junk that's in there. We can give you permission, but only you can do the work, Lord. Drive them out. Drive the garbage out, Lord. Create in us a clean heart. Make our heart a place of prayer, a place of worship and praise, a place where wonderful things on a spirit level happen. We love you, Lord. We ask you to help your church, Lord Jesus. And yes, of course, this church too, for there are many problems, no doubt, in our fellowship that are hindering the work you want to do. Reveal those to us too, that we might repent of them and that you might remove those obstacles that your power would flow freely through us as a church. That you might live in this temple Calvary Chapel of Elk Grove and feel right at home. We love you now, Lord. We just thank you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.